Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Ali, and I'm a ministry leader here for the Night Church Music. I'm going to be reading the Bible for us today. The Bible reading comes from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. Deuteronomy chapter 5, 1 to 22. Sorry. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in the hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord, because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor your foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honour your mother and your father as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. These are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice, to your whole assembly there on the mountain, from out of the fire, the cloud and the deep darkness, and he added nothing more. Then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and let's ask God to help us this morning as we come to this new series. Father, give us faith to receive your word. Give us understanding to know what it means. And give us the will to put it into practice. Through Jesus our Lord, we pray. Amen. What comes to, your, what comes to mind when you think of the Ten Commandments? 
What is it that comes to your thought? What do you think about? What do you feel about as you think about the Ten Commandments? Maybe for you, it takes you back to your childhood and you have this memory of your dad with a bar of soap saying, do not use the Lord's name in vain or I will wash your mouth out. Maybe you remember that threat. Maybe you remember that threat of your mum saying, you must do your schoolwork. You must do this. You must have a shower. You must do this. And she says to you, honour your father and your mother. And so they lay the Ten Commandments down on you. What's your memory of the Ten Commandments? What do you feel? What comes to mind? Maybe for you, it's a distant memory. Maybe for you, it's something that as you've stepped in church for the first time today in 20 years, it takes you back to scripture in school or takes you back to Sunday school where you were sort of forced to memorize the Ten Commandments. Maybe for you, the only equivalent of thinking of it is you see it in movies. You feel like it's out of date, it's irrelevant, it's archaic, it's words that do we really need it today? What memory comes to your mind? What do you feel as you think about the Ten Commandments? Well, obviously today we're starting a new series in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 5 as we're going to walk through them and have a look at this sermon series that looks at the Ten Commandments. See, they're Ten Commandments that remind us that we've been set free to live free for Jesus. My hope for us is to see that they're not negative, but actually they're positive. It'll be a time for us to reaffirm them, to rediscover them, and to see the beauty and the wonder that's found within them. And so we're going to set a path for the next nine weeks as we look at this, to find the joy of living them out as people who have been set free to live free for Jesus. But as we come to the Ten Commandments, it's really helpful for us to, to get our head right about them. Because we know them as the Ten Commandments. But if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 13, he declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow. Now, some of you may have a footnote in your Bible. Not every Bible has this, but there'll be a footnote there, possibly on the word commandment, that says words. See, if you read Deuteronomy, it's the Ten Words. See, the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, it doesn't refer to them as the Ten Commandments. It actually refers to them as Ten Words. Now, they are commands as we look at each, each one individually, but the Bible doesn't refer to them as Ten Commandments, but it actually refers to them as Ten Words. Ten Words for the Free Life. Because, see, we need to get the context. You know, as you read literature, we need to understand the context in which these words come to us in. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, there is five books of the Pentateuch. Pentameets 5, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we're at the end of Deuteronomy. We're getting to the end of the Pentateuch. The Israelites, God's people, are on the edge of the promised land. And what happens in the book of Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth, the stars, the sun. He created Adam and Eve to have a relationship with him, to walk in the garden with him. And they were in paradise. And they were to have dominion over the animals. They have dominion over the world. They were to be vice regents. They were made in the image of God. But Adam and Eve ate the fruit. They said, no, God, we don't trust that you have our best interests in mind. We want to live our way. We want to live it freeing our way. And so what did they do? They ate, they sinned, kicked out of God's presence. 
and we're all in the first Adam. And what happens is as you read these next couple of books, especially Genesis, you see this spiral of humanity. You see how sin and evil corrupts the world. But we see that God's not done with it. And he steps in and he rescues a man called Abraham out of pagan worship and says to Abraham, through you, all nations will be blessed. There's going to be a seed. Now, we read in the book of Galatians over the last term, we saw that that seed's Jesus. But he says to Abraham, through you, you're going to have a son. Now, they're old and barren. They can't have kids. But there's a promised son that through him, all nations will be blessed. We can be redeemed and saved. And so Abraham has a son called Isaac. Isaac has a son called Jacob. Jacob has like 12 boys and they're a dysfunctional family, majorly. And somehow because of the dysfunction and God's providence, they end up in Egypt under Pharaoh. And it goes well to begin with. But after 400 years, they're oppressed. They're in slavery. They're under Pharaoh. And these Israelites, they've... In a way, we saw in the book of Exodus, they've taken on, they've forgotten about God and and they've taken on the worship of the Egyptian gods. And as we see the Egyptian gods, their their son, it's the river, it's, it's creation, it's animals. See, God intended for us to rule over them, but instead humanity flipped it and we've allowed animals and them to become gods in our life. And what does God do? He sends Moses and he rescues them. He, he rescues these people. We see that God has power over the, the, the snakes. He has power over the gnats. He has power over all these things. And we see this marvelous hand of the one true God who has ultimate power and he destroys these gods. And we see the great deliverance of the Israelites through the Red Sea, a wall of water on each side and they walk through and God rescues these people. And so when you come to Deuteronomy chapter five, guess what you've got to know that's already happened? They've been rescued. See, it's not that here is a bunch of rules and regulations for you and then you become my people. No, be grounded to know they've already been rescued. They've been rescued out of a slavery and oppression. And so what, what, is, what are the Ten Commandments going to reveal to us? What's number one going to reveal to us today? It's going to reveal three things to us. And the first thing is that we've been rescued for relationship. So today, what are we going to see? We're going to see that we've been rescued for relationship. That's point one. Now, we yearn for relationship. I think deep down, all of us want to have relationships. We all want to have intimacy. We all want to be loved. We all want to relate to one another well. And I think that yearning for relationship plays out in many things we do. For instance, lying. Why do we tell a white lie? Because we want to save face. We don't want to lose that relationship. Why do we steal? Because we don't want to look like we don't have our life together. And we want to show that everything's okay. And so you don't want to lose relationships. We have this desire for relationships. But here we see that we've been rescued for it. Have a look at verse 2. The Lord, notice the language. The Lord, our God. Verse 6. I am the Lord. Your God, that's personal language. That's relational language. And notice who he's not speaking to. He's not speaking to the Canaanites. He's not speaking to the Egyptians. He's speaking to those he has rescued and redeemed. Later on in Deuteronomy chapter 14, it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples, 
right? Out of the Egyptians, out of the Canaanites. Later on, it's going to be the Assyrians, the Babylon. Out of all these people on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be my treasured possession. Do you see the power of verse 6? I am the Lord, your God. They're his treasured possession. They're in relationship with the God who created everything. A couple of years ago, I read a book by um, Richard Haw- uh, Sorry, Richard Dawkins. It's called Outgrowing God. I sort of gave it a bit of a skim read. He's a, he's a renowned atheist. He speaks a lot about it. And in this book, Outgrowing God, <coughs> Richard Dawkins basically goes through the Ten Commandments, gives his own commentary on it. But at the same time, Richard Dawkins, he sort of says they're out of date. But who is God to say that you must do these things to be right with him? He's sort of saying like God's demanding this of you to be loved by him and a variety of things. And what Richard Dawkins does is I think what most of us do when we come to Deuteronomy, we don't ground it in the context of verse 6. So he was bagging it out, but yet he'd, he'd miss verse 6. I am the Lord your God. Notice there's already relationship there. And two things, who brought you out of Egypt and out of slavery. Don't forget it. That's the context. And so the Israelites, as they're on the edge of the promised land, God says, you're my treasured possessions. Rescued to relate to the God of the world who created it. The nation surrounding them didn't have this God. And we too, this side, 2,000 years later from Jesus, this side of the cross, 1 Peter chapter 2 says, we are his holy people, his chosen people, his treasured possessions. See, we too are treasured and in relationship with God because we've been rescued for relationship. See, it's, it's ideal in this context to remember that we've already been rescued. Now, you might be thinking here today and you go, James, you look at my family and you go, I want to become a McCleary. So you want the family name, you know, you want to become, you've seen James now and he's just like, I want to be a part of their family. And so what happens is tomorrow morning, you knock on my door at 6.30, go and open the door and you say, I'm coming in. You come and have breakfast with us. You watch everything the McCleary's do. You come and have lunch and dinner. You come after work, you come home and you you come and hang out with us and you're watching everything that the McCleary's do, what they eat, when they drink coffee, when they watch TV, you know, everything they do and you've watched it for about two months. And then you go, well, I've watched what they do. Now I'm going to do what the McCleary's do. And so you replicate what the McCleary's do. And after three months, you come to me one morning and say, hey, James, I want the McCleary name because I do what McCleary's do. No, you can't. You're not in the family. See, doing those things doesn't make you a part of the McCleary family. We do it because we are the family. We're in relationship with each other. And see here, we've been rescued for relationships. Salvation doesn't come through obedience, but that's the reason for obedience. Now, you might be here and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're sort of sussing out Christianity and who Jesus is. And for you growing up, the Ten Commandments were on billboards. They were jammed down your throat. You're meant to memorize them. And you sit there going, man, they just seem like, are these the things I have to do to get right with God? No, they're not. See, it's, it's because they've already got a relationship with God. It's out of gratitude and thanks. When you are rescued from a fiery building, the house is burning down and the fire brigade comes along and the man or the woman comes in and they save you and your family. Your response is gratitude and thankfulness. 
to the one who has saved you. And so we too are eternally grateful. But as we think about being rescued for relationships, guess what relationships need? They need boundaries because boundaries bring freedom. And so what does what does these words, these 10 words reveal to us today? Well, it reveals to us that we're rescued for relationship, but also we're rescued to live free. That's number two. Imagine as you go through these 10 words, imagine if we lived them out perfectly, each one of us. In a way, there'd be no need for police. There'd be no need for, ju- like, imagine that. But we're to live as rescued people. These, these truths are I think in a way they're timeless words. Have a look at verse 2 to 4. I think they're timeless words because in the context, again, of Deuteronomy chapter 5, now we've just done Exodus. So it, we got to Exodus, the end of, you know, middle of Exodus, and they've been rescued, and then God speaks to Moses at Mount Sinai. Now in Deuteronomy, when these words were preached, it's 40 years after that. So this is Moses' dying message. It's like his last word to the people. They've been 40 years in the wilderness and Moses speaks to them. So guess what? Most of those who were rescued out of Egypt are dead. These are second generations. These are third generation Israelites. And have a look at these words. It's puzzling. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not made with our ancestors, not made with your parents who were rescued, but the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us. Now, what's, what's Moses doing there? It's, it's, it's confusing. Well, I think what he's doing, it's a timeless truth. You see, it's, this wasn't just for your parents. It's for the next generation and your kids and your kids after, and it just keeps going on. It's, it's a timeless truth about revealing the character of God and all that that we're going to see over the coming weeks. We were made to enjoy God. We were made to glorify God. So there's a timeless truth. But now, it's interesting. In in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, they're made to reveal who God is because the nations around them are going to see how these Israelites live these out and they're going to go, wow, look at the God who rescued them. So it reveals the character of God. It reveals the character of the God who rescued these people. I wonder when you think of laws, when you think of commandments, I think you think, well, maybe you think they're restrictive. I do. Maybe you think they're sort of the fun police. I do sometimes. Sometimes we think that they're the party stoppers. Like why would, you know, like that. But did you notice that they've been rescued? They've been rescued from slavery. In verse 6, I've brought you the law, I've brought you out of Egypt and out of slavery. He hasn't brought them back to some form of chaotic slavery. No, no. See, the 10 words are for those who have been freed. See, in the Old Testament, that from this point, they were under the law. We saw in the book of Galatians a couple of weeks ago that we're no longer under that law, that we've been set free to be free in Jesus. The law was a guardian until Jesus came. So, what does that mean for us today, this side of Jesus? Well, what we see in the New Testament is that Jesus doesn't say, I came to abolish, but I came to fulfill the law. We see that Jesus alludes often to sexual immorality, theft, and false testimony in Matthew 15. Guess what? They're the 10 words. We see in the book of Romans with Paul, Romans chapter 13, he says, how do we love one another? Whoever fulfills the law lives this out. No adultery, 
no theft, no covenant. Do you, do you see how they're timeless truths for the people of God that reveal who God is? It shows us how to live out as redeemed people, to love others, to love God and to love other people. Because see, our idea of love, it's, it's changed. It's sort of thought differently of today that we are to love one another. We, we are to show love to everyone. And so that means that to love someone who you love dearly or to, be, to love someone, it's okay to tell a white lie. Do you know what I mean? Because like, you don't want to hurt their feelings. And so when you talk to someone, to love them, it's not to tell them the truth, but sometimes we'll, we'll just skate over it. Is that actually love? It, it's how we view love today. It's whatever makes them feel. But you see, love is it's more than that. Because see, a loving relationship needs boundaries. Every relationship needs boundaries, doesn't it? A marriage needs boundaries. If you're a young couple here dating before marriage, you need boundaries and they're good boundaries. You know, kids, three-year-olds walking around the house, you're not going to get them carrying around the butcher's knife, are you? You need boundaries for kids all the time. But it's good, isn't it? Now, they think it's taking their freedom, but it's actually, it's very good. It's good to have boundaries for your kids. And it's also loving to have boundaries for all ages. See, if you're 85 years old here today, you'll probably have to get tested for driving every year. That's actually the most loving thing we can do, isn't it? Now, you might say, oh, no, but I'm, I'm safe to drive. Maybe you're not. And that's not to, to, to sort of look down. It's to go, we have those boundaries for a reason because we want safety on our roads. And so the most loving thing we could do is go, yep, 86, you can keep driving. 90, you know, 92, you can keep driving. Or we have to say, actually, the most loving thing is for you not to drive now. See, boundaries, boundaries are actually freeing. They, they show us how to love freely, to live it out. Now, in 2015... We went to Christchurch, went to New Zealand for a mission trip through Bible College. So we headed off to two, in 2015 to Christchurch for a week. We did, we did a mission trip to Christchurch and, and to the earthquakes have been there recently. But then we, we decided to take an extra week, um, holidays in the South Island. So we went to Queenstown. Ali was there. She was 36 weeks pregnant. Harvey was there. Finley was there. And obviously Will was in the stomach, in the womb of my lovely wife. And so we went to Queenstown and it was my birthday. Now, and we thought we'd celebrate it. And Al said, why don't you go on a shot over jet ride in Queenstown? Now, my wife's 36 weeks pregnant, so the boundaries are what? She can't go on the jet boat, but I could. Now, this jet boat ride, it was going through these canyons. And, and as you go through it, now, now picture this. These are like, I, I like this, right? It's V8, twin V8 turboed motors that pump out 760 litres a second. Do you know what that is? That's 253 three-litre milk cartons a second out the back. So you can imagine how fast this jet boat went. It was incredible. And it was through these narrow canyons. Now, if I was to lay out straight horizontally, guess what would have happened? I probably would have touched each side. But if I was to put my hand out, it would have snapped it off. And if I was to stand up, it would have thrown me out. It was driving at such a fast pace. Now, that's jet boat override. Guess what it had? It had boundaries. 
Now, isn't that good? Life jacket, seatbelt. I wasn't allowed to stand up. I just couldn't sit anywhere on the boat because of my size and height, so I had to sit somewhere else. I couldn't just put my hands out. As you go along, you've got to keep them in. This whole section of canyon was closed to the public so no one could gain access to it. Two boats, one boat would go out, get to the end of the trip, call back, and they would meet halfway in a safe spot and keep going. Those boundaries, were they obstructive? Were they irritable? No, they were freeing. It was adrenaline fun. I had the, I had the time of my life cruising at ridiculous speed. See, those boundaries, it, it didn't take away the fun of life. It actually gave boundaries and gave meaning to it. See, we've been rescued. Rescued to live free and have boundaries. And so what are these, what are these 10 words? What, are they, what is it going to reveal to us? We're going to say that we've been rescued for relationship. We've been rescued. We've been rescued to live free. But we've also been rescued for exclusive allegiance. Here's how we get to the first word. The first commandment. We've been rescued for exclusive allegiance. How are we to live as rescued people? How do we live as rescued people of God? Exclusive allegiance. See, all the other nine commandments, they flow out of this. If you break the stealing one, you've broken number one. You break number five, you've broken number one. They all flow down, right down to the, the end. We get to love God and love others. The first four are all about loving God. The last six, they're about loving other people. Have a look at verse seven then. Here, we've been rescued to, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, literally what that could mean, it's just, they have no other gods in my presence. You could go to have no other gods beside me or to the left of me. It could mean to have no other gods instead of me or before my face. Now, Really what it's saying is you'll have no other gods in my presence. You'll have no other gods before my face, I think. It's probably a great way to think about it. See, to love God is to be exclusively loyal to God. It's our response to being rescued. As Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You can't serve money and God. You'll love one or you'll hate the other. You can't, serve, you can't be devoted. You'll be devoted to one or you'll despise the other. There's to be no other gods before my face, says God. So what he's saying is, don't two-time me. Or to put it another way, don't two-time me. A married couple are sitting there watching TV at night and it's nearly bedtime and so the husband says, I'm just ducking out, dear. And so he ducks out after 20 years of marriage. He walks out, she goes to the bedroom, has a shower, cleans her teeth, lays down, starts reading a book, puts a lantern on. About an hour later, she hears the door open and she hears not just one pair of footsteps, she hears two. She hears two sets of footsteps walking up the hall. And her husband walks in the room and says, hey, Dale, here is my mistress. And he lays down and he has sex with his mistress in front of his wife. Don't have any other gods before my face. Forsake all others. See, Ali, will you take James to be your wife? Will you love her, comfort her, honour and cherish her? And forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you shall live. Guess what my wife said? I will. We get asked that on our wedding day. 
Will we be committed to the other person? And why do we ask forsaking all others? Because in reality, there could be someone else who comes along and grabs our affections. There could be someone else who comes along and grabs and competes for our loyalty and our allegiance. There is always something or someone competing for our loyalty. See, on the edge of the promised land, these people, these Israelites, they're they're ready to enter the land flowing with milk and honey that God has promised to them. But it's filled with Canaanites who worship other gods. And, as, and God says to them, as you enter this land, you are to have no other gods before me, before my face. I can't stand to have any other rivals. And see, what did the, the, the Philistines do? They captured the ark of the Lord in 1 Samuel chapter 5. They take the ark and they take it to the temple of Dagon and they sit it in the temple of Dagon. And every morning they come out and the, the Dagon, their, their God, has fallen flat on its face. Every day. Because God says there can be no other God before me. Exclusive allegiance. Because the other gods, he's saying to these Israelites, as you go into this land, there's going to be other gods that are going to allure you. They're going to attract you. They're going to appear to give you life, purpose, and significance. Don't flirt with them, he says. Now, you and me may not be drawn to sacrifice at the temple. To draw on to, to bow down to the fertility gods or to participate in temple prostitution or to bow down to wooden idolatry as what was possibly happening in the Canaanite cities. Now, we may not be tempted to do that. But as the Israelites go in there, there's going to be this temptation to conquer the land, but have those gods become their gods to, called synchronism where we, we bring the religion of that place into our worship. Now, missionaries have been struggling with this for centuries because as missionaries go into another country and people are rescued, they've got their pagan worship and you've got to work out when does it become synchronism where we're starting to, to bring idol worship in. Now, probably for most of us, we're not having that problem as much. Maybe you have if you grew up in an eastern Eastern country, and you were saved out of Hinduism, or you're saved and you lived there for a while, you would have wrestled with what does it mean not to have any other gods before my face. But for us, I don't think we have as much trouble with that, but yet we do. Because they're different gods in the 21st century of Australia. We have different functional gods. They may not be temple prostitution, but there'll be other things. See, Martin Luther, there's going to be a quote that comes up on your screen. Martin Luther helpfully helps us understand what a God is. A God means that from which we are to expect all good and to which we are to take refuge in all distress. So that to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe him from the whole heart. That now, I say, upon which you set your heart and put your trust is properly your God. What do you take refuge in distress? What do you trust in from your whole heart to say, this will give me life? Or put it another way, another way of breaking this, this commandment is to, it's, it's when we find our significance in our spouse. When we find security in our jobs, when we, what are you most devoted to? Where do you go to find your ultimate purpose in life? See, that's your functional God. John Piper says, God is most glorified when you are most satisfied in him. 
See, I think Piper's right. There's when you're most satisfied in God that he's most glorified. See, what do you find satisfaction? Where are you being satisfied today? Where are you going to? Are you looking to it for a spouse? Are you looking to it at a job? Are you looking to it in high school and careers and marks? Are you just hoping that people will relate to you and love you as a teenager? And yet they're not delivering for you. And so I want to do two things. I want to try and help us see how do, how do we live this out? How do we live our exclusive allegiance? There's two ways. The first one is to avoid idolatry. We avoid idolatry. See, the Canaanite gods, they're going to go in there, right? They're going to go in and conquer this land. There would have been gluttony. There would have been drunkenness. There was ritual prostitution. Now, we may not struggle with that last one, but I wonder if we do with food. Or, or do we, do we, have we synchronized our, our, our Western culture where our value and satisfaction is found in the relationship of someone else? That for you, maybe having a healthy marriage is to have a spouse who will love you deeply and that's where you find your meaning and purpose and satisfaction in life. But idolatry, it's, it's two timing. It's to look everywhere else but to God for blessing, security, purpose and meaning in life. Don't flirt with other gods. God is a jealous God. But here, listen to this, he's not, a jealous, he's not jealous of you, but he's jealous for you. So it's, it's actually really helpful for me to be jealous for Ali's affections. And it's very healthy for Ali to be jealous for my affections. Because we're married. We're in a marriage relationship, right? That I'm a one-woman man and that she's a one-man woman. Something like that. You, know, you see what I mean? Like, it's actually really good for us to be jealous in that sense. For her affections. And so... God is jealous for ours. I wonder, have you, ever, have you ever worked in a workplace where, you know, five out of six people are, they're fully aligned and loyal to the company brand, to the product you sell, to the business. But you've got one person who's not loyal. That one person whose allegiance is somewhere else, off, I don't know, with whatever it is. And what do they bring? They, they bring chaos because they're loyal somewhere else. Have you ever worked with someone like that? Avoid idolatry. Now, we are shocked, and we should be. We are shocked when sexual immorality, when adultery takes place in a marriage. Maybe you've experienced that personally where someone has committed adultery in your relationship. Maybe for you, it's been a family member. Maybe for you, it's been in a church, you've seen it, and you've felt the distraught, the pain, and, and all that that does, sexual immorality, what it brings, adultery, how, how shocking it is, and we are shocked by it, and we should be. But I wonder, are we as shocked by spiritual adultery as we are by physical adultery? Your God is what controls you, who you serve and seek, love, and you're loyal to. As J.I. Packer said, it could be sex, it could be money, it could be food, it could be pleasure, possessions, or position. Even position can be your God, that you want to be in a place of position of power. And so I want to ask these three questions. They're going to come on the screen. What do you live for? What can't you live without? Or what do you run to in times of distress and need? Because every day as Christians, we are being tempted 
to exchange the glorious Christ for a pathetic substitute. Whether it's, whether it's a portfolio of properties that give us meaning or whether it's gaining acceptance through our diligent service in the local church to whether we're someone who's there to rescue everyone else and so we're always there to help them 24-7 and that gives us our popularity and meaning in life. Avoid idolatry. But how do we do that? Well, you know what the answer is? It's loyalty to Christ. Look to Christ. In everything we do, there is one aim, pleasing and glorifying Jesus. Under the new covenant, this side of Jesus, it has changed. This side of the cross, it has changed for us as Christians. See, God spoke through Moses at Mount Horeb. He spoke to Moses there. But for us, God spoke at the Mount Transfiguration where Jesus was, was shining and we saw the glory of who Jesus is. We saw God and he said, this is my chosen son, listen to him. We saw the Ten Commandments given at Mount Horeb and yet here we have the Sermon on the Mount. We see that now to truly be exclusively loyal, to be exclusively aligned with God, it is to worship Jesus. You cannot worship the true God unless you are worshipping the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, we can be sincere in our worship. We can be honest in our worship of God and still be worshipping the wrong God. But through Jesus, we've been set free to live out exclusive allegiance to God alone. How do we do that? How do we live this loyalty out? How do we live this exclusive allegiance out? It's we recall the costly deliverance for us. We recall the gospel every day of the deliverance that Jesus did to make us his. So we need to recall the love of God. We need to recall how great the good news of Jesus is. Put it, put it uh, probably, this is not the most helpful way, but it's one way. We just bought a house in Blacktown and and we're renovating, painting, doing but, but guess what? It came with a spa, right? It just came with a spa. Well, that's good. What, what, whoopie do? Came with this spa, and so it was a bit broken, and so it needs a bit of work, and so I was fixing it up, and it's like this is a cheap, dirty old spa. So I rang Arctic Spas. I got a hold of an Australian consultant who was able to help me get parts, and I was able to fix it. And he said to me, he said, "Mate, do you know what you've got?" And I said, "I got a spa." So no, mate, do you know what you've got? He said, you've got the top of the line and do you know how much it would cost you to replace that spa today? And he told me the figure and I've gone, whoa, I would never buy a spa like that. And so as I sit there at night in the spa and I watch the stars, I recall the generous gift. I recall the beauty and the wonder of going, wow, look what I've got. But look how much we've got in Jesus. Look at the deliverance that we have, that we've been, the cost of it. And so that as we adore Christ, as you love, the re as you love to rest in him and you find your salvation in him, as you are overwhelmed by this grace offered to you in the gospel, these other nine will overflow. It is then that our families, it is then that our jobs, our careers, our retirements, our relationships, it's in those things that we can find true meaning in Jesus and do not become man-made gods acting as pathetic substitutes instead of Jesus. Because see, our loyalty to Christ 
comes from Jesus' loyalty to his Father. Do you see that? It's only because of Christ that we can now live this way. See, our loyalty to Christ comes from Jesus' loyalty because Jesus succeeded where you and me failed. Jesus succeeded where you and me constantly fall over. See, Jesus succeeded where we failed. Because see, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is, he hasn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. He's hungry, he's thirsty. Now, Adam and Eve had a garden, they had food, they, were, they had everything, and they were tempted and they failed. And here in this wilderness, Satan comes to Jesus and he grabs Jesus, he leads him up a hill and says, look over this world, look at all these kingdoms. If you bow down and worship me, you can have all of this today. So in a way, he's saying you can have purpose, you can have significance, you can have life, you can be satisfied if you just bow down and worship me today. You can have all this. If you worship me, it will be yours. See, our idols promise the same thing. Our jobs, our relationships, our wealth, our sexual expression, they all allude to us to think that it will give us life and satisfaction. And what happens is we just fall over it all the time. But you know what Jesus' answer was? It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And that's why, because of his loyalty, that we will be exclusively loyal to him because of the great cost. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have rescued us to be yours to be dearly loved children of God. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you so that we may live lives as rescued people. People who have been rescued for relationship, people who have been rescued to live free and people who have lived to be exclusively in allegiance to you. So Father, we ask that you will help us to do that this week. Help us to remember the costly price of our deliverance and to love to have you as the one of our life. Uh, Father, we ask that your spirit will work powerfully in our lives now to convict us of those things in our lives where we're actually, where we've allowed maybe our marriage, where we may have allowed our schooling, where we may have allowed our parenting style, where we may have loved, allowed our job or our church to, to be pathetic substitutes to our glorious Christ. Forgive us, we pray. Refix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.